Are you ready? We've been out of Exodus for two weeks. Ironic Exodus out of it. Um, raise your hand if you don't have a Bible. Let's get one to you. Open them up, please, to Exodus chapter 9. As we continue verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Word of God. Again, currently in the book of Exodus. Ech means out of. Chodas means the way, the path. It's the way out. Or if we will, it's the book of Exodus. And do this, if you will. Actually, open up to... We're going to let, let's get our way to it for, for context. I have a nine-year-old that says, Dad, I'm not sure I understand that in that context. So uh, she's kind of big on that too. Can you imagine? Yes, you can, probably. Exodus, go to Exodus 3 for a second. Let's kind of get into it. And we're going to pray right away and dig right in because I want to build us right into where we're at in our text in Exodus 9. We'll pick it up in verse 8 today. We really only have five verses to dig through. All right, are you there? And your apps on your iPads and those good old faithfuls. All right, pray with me, would you please? God, I thank you so much for the privilege of being able to take this time and to study your word. God, I pray that you would keep me lucent. Um, God, please, um, I know that it's been only really a day or so since I've landed and touched ground here, ground here, but God, I just pray that you would, through your Holy Spirit, speak through me. And God, we really come today to interface with you, to encounter you in your word, to be more than just taught, God, but to be enriched and to try to reconcile two paradoxes uh, in themselves, God, that a God who is so infinite would also desire to be so intimate. And so, God, in that, please take now that perfect, infinite person that you are, Lord, and, and intimize with us in this time. That same voice that splinters the cedars, God, of Lebanon and causes the deer to give birth. The same voice that said light be and there was and the universe be and in essence there was. Now, Lord, speak to us in that still small whisper that our ears don't explode and our brains don't ooze out of our heads. But, God, that our hearts would hear you. Speak where we need to hear you, God. And I pray that you would speak fluent us now, individually, every one of us, right where we need to hear you. So God, give us ears to hear what you would have to say to us today. And God, for our eyes, open them up, unveil them, God. Let them not be in any way hidden or darkened from the things you want to show us today. That our eyes would see. And that our hearts would be fertile soil for the planting of your word, God. So that you would inculcate through that, Lord, your very will in our lives that we would find ourselves doing that which pleases you the most and makes, God, this day so much a blessing. Teach us to love you and to know you better, to walk with you as you desire. Let us, just show us, reveal to us your will, your love, your, your great grace. If there are any who have yet to respond to the gift of your Son, Jesus the Christ, Father, I pray today would be the day of their salvation. Take my lips and attach them to your heart, God, please. And as you, fold, as you molded this body, God, formed it into what I am, God, I pray now as you've breathed life into it, breathe through me now, God, your word, active and alive, sharper than a double-edged sword, dividing joints and marrow, soul and spirit. Discern every intent, every thought in our hearts. And God, now I pray, redeem every second. Don't let me go a minute above or before, God, but rather let every word be your word spoken. As I commit this time to you now, Jesus, in your name, be exalted and glorified. Amen. I would say today, as I would any, don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always have the final say. Let the Bible always be that for which you test all things to be true or false. I would say, don't take my word for it. Take the word for it. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 7, just for our sense of context, God had now seen a group of people he had ordained over 400 years prior, but he had said in, in Genesis 15 that the people, this nation he was going to birth, would be slaves in a place that was not their own, that they didn't belong in. And for 400 years they would be slaves, but then after that time in the fourth generation, God would raise up a generation, an individual. And in that fourth generation they would leave. And they would leave more than just freed slaves. They would leave wealthy. Now that's a bit of a paradox in itself, isn't it? 400 years, you're slaves, and then God says, go home and you go home rich. To a land, by the way, you've never known. And this is where it starts now, is as God now re-intervenes and interposes through history those 400 years later. In Exodus 3, verse 
7, we see now that God is actually speaking to the man he's recruiting to be, in essence, the figurehead of this deliverance, a man named Moshe. We don't know what his birth name is by his own mother, because Yechavid, by the way, we don't have recorded, but we do have that the Pharaoh's daughter, who actually draws him from the water, calls him drawn out. And boy, the man will really live up to that name, because he will not only be one drawn out, but he will be the one drawing millions out of Egypt as well. In Exodus 3, 7, God speaks and the Lord says, I have surely seen the oppression of my people that are in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. And I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and large land, a land flowing with milk and honey. God had said in verse 3, and it makes it really clear in verse 3 that he has seen, he has heard, and he knows. What did he see? He saw the repression he has heard their cries. And the word for no, yada, is the word that doesn't mean he's aware of or he's been alerted of or he got the memo, but God is personally involved in this understanding. And of course, this takes us to Isaiah 53, where it says he was a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. Nobody more familiar with sorrow than this God. And he says, I've come to deliver then in the next verse. And of course, that's a fairly easy thing until we try to put it into Christian terms. So you've called the pizza place. And you've told them, you want a double pepperoni, three cheese pizza? And they say, well, great, because we deliver. Perfect. How long? About a half hour. An hour and a half later, you call them and you say, where's my pizza? And they go, well, what do you mean? You say, well, you said you deliver. And they say, well, it's, it's removed from our place. It's gone from the building. And you're like, I don't really care if it's gone from your building. Is it at my house? Because... Delivery doesn't happen unless you not only remove it, but take it to a specific location. Interesting, because a lot of times we can go to things and call them deliverance, and we're not even concerned about where we're going. We're just concerned about what we're leaving. But God is always speaking of deliverance. And deliverance is not just removing you from someplace. It's bringing you somewhere else. We've been delivered out of the kingdom of darkness into the son he loves. We were delivered out of the powers of hell into his son. Everything always brings us to Jesus. That is the destination of our deliverance. Removal is Egypt. Now, the man who's now sequestering for that, Moshe, doesn't seem to have a problem with God coming down and delivering the people until God makes clear that he wants to use him to do it. And then all of a sudden there's massive eye trouble. Who am I that I should deliver the people? What should I say and who should I say when they ask me? And God says, I am. I will be with you. It's like, Moses, you're looking through the wrong set of eyes. Your eyes are I, who am I? And God's like, it's irrelevant who you are. The important thing is who I am. And if you're looking through the wrong set of eyes, you will never believe in God's deliverance because somehow you tend to think the thing rests upon you. And can I just honestly say, you're not a deliverer, nor am I. The same way that a hose is not a fountain, but it can be a conduit of one. And God is determined to make us fonts of his deliverance, as this man as well. But chapter 3, verse 19, God makes clear it's not going to be an easy road. Take a look at it with me. In verse 19, it says, But I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not even by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all of my wonders, which I will do in their midst. And after that, he will let you go. God says, look at this isn't going to be you're going to go up to Pharaoh and say, let him go. And Pharaoh says, okay, and that's it. Now, God does that purposely, by the way, and he has a habit of doing that throughout history. One of the reasons is, is if the enemy were to let you go so quickly, you'd feel welcome to return. If the battle becomes ugly, where the enemy now not only has to be just somewhat bettered, but now has to be vanquished, well, then the bridges burn and you won't return. And God has no interest in you wanting to go back to Egypt. Although we'll find out that it seems to be a terrible problem among the people, and if I dare say, with us as well. So, how bad will it get? Chapter 4, verse, 40, verse 22. Look at it with me. And again, I've just kind of given you bits so that we can get into our context. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Anyone tells you that God has no son is not dealing with our God. My God has many sons because he's also, by the way, very big on adoption. And glory to God for that. And by the way, his house isn't full. So if you've not said yes to Jesus, let me let you know. My God is big on adoption and he's got your name on a chair and he's waiting for you to come. I know that beautiful gift of adoption and I know what it's like to have an empty chair that our other child would look at and say, don't sit in that chair. Ruthie's there before we even met her. And so I understand the idea and I kind of get the idea for some of us. We're like, hey, 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 
There's a chair in our Father's house waiting with your name on it. And the Lord isn't letting anyone else sit there until you get there. Say to him, and I say to you, now let my son go that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed I will kill your son, your firstborn. God makes very clear, by the way, that the whole thing is going to end up, the apex of the showdown will be the death of the firstborn. And by the way, can I just say, the apex of every deliverance ends with the death of a firstborn, with the only begotten. With that in mind, chapter 5, verse 7, Pharaoh doesn't respond very well. As a matter of fact, he responds by making things worse. His response is, you shall no longer give the people straw to make brick as before. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. And you shall lay on them the quart of brick which they made before. You shall not reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Pharaoh's response is, let's make their life worse. Which, by the way, will make it easier for you to not want to go back to Egypt because he's making your life miserable. Now the people have to work twice as hard. They're getting beat and their life is miserable. And they say, look at what Pharaoh's doing to us. Chapter 6, verse 1, God responds. Then the Lord said to Moshe, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will let them go, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. I am the Lord. In other words, God says, Now it's my turn. Now God could have just killed all the Egyptians, killed Pharaoh and said, Grab their stuff and go. But he didn't. And the reason is simple. Because God also loves the Egyptians. God loves the sickest of human beings, the most warped and twisted and bent of human beings because they were still all created intentionally by God to be a vehicle or a recipient of His love. Well, so God starts to say that, but He also makes clear that God is going to be involved even in Pharaoh's resistance. Now, the word harder, chazek, is a word, and means in its simplest sense to strengthen. It does not mean a change. Nothing about it changes the course of something. In other words, you have a resolve for something, God strengthens the resolve, so you're further insistent in the direction you're already going. In chapter 7, God makes clear why that is in verse 3. Look at that with me, and we're almost there now to our text. In 7 verse 3, God says, And I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. Pharaoh will not heed you, so that I may lay my hand on Egypt and bring my armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. God says, this is what I want you to know. What I want you to know is I'm doing all of this so that not only will the Israelis, but the Egyptians will also know that I'm the Lord. And by the time this is done, no human being in the face of southern uh, northern Africa is going to doubt who the Lord is. And the way that God is going to do it is systematically, because God always seems to have a plan, systematically taking down every god that is worshipped in Egypt. For the Israelis, so they recognize, don't take any of them with you. And for the Egyptians to realize you should get out with them. And so with that, God starts to handle it. And He takes them down. He handles it with flow. With the flows, with the frogs, with the fleas, with the flies, with the farms, and now with the flesh. And that's where we're at now with the sixth of ten plagues. Exodus chapter 9, verse 8. So the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take for yourselves handfuls of ashes from a furnace, And let Moses scatter it toward the heavens in the sight of Pharaoh. And it will become fine dust in all the land of Egypt. And it will cause boils to break out in sores on man and beast throughout all of the land of Egypt. Then they took ashes from the furnace and stood before Pharaoh. And Moses scattered them toward heaven. Notice where he scatters them. And they caused boils that break out in sores on man and on beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils were on the magicians and on all of the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not heed them, just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Now, God seems to have a pattern in these plagues, not just taking down these false idols that are worshipped among Egypt, but even in the manner in which he does so. And they go in three sets of threes, and then we get the final showdown, of course, with the death of the firstborn. And the first two come by warning, and then the third, come, third one comes without warning. 
And then the next two come with warning, and then the third comes without warning. And that will happen three times until we get to our tenth. That happened with our first three, by the way, with our Nile. And then, of course, with the Nile, then the frogs, both at warning, of course. And then those bugs that were horrible that came up as well, without warning. And then we have that again with the biting flies, if you remember, and then the disease on the livestock, both at the warning before Pharaoh. And now we're back at the one without warning. In other words, it's like, here's two, and you buy two, or get two, and you get one free. And now, unfortunately, this is one that's not much of a deal. And this is one of those you'd wish you'd not gotten anything free. It's like a spanking. Now, with that in mind, hey, I'll give you an extra one if you want. No, 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 this is more than enough. And so here we are in this. And so what in the world is God doing by bringing about this? I mean, boils, really, boils? Well, first of all, think about what boils are. Boils are some form of toxin gets underneath your flesh. And as it gets through to the other side of your flesh, there's a part of you that really does, that recognizes it doesn't belong there. And it recognizes it doesn't belong there. It actually surfaces then back on your flesh in a very unsightly and unpleasant way, causing great pain and suffering. Ultimately, it wells up underneath you. The body actually contributes to it to get that nastiness out of you because your body says it does not belong here. Our precious little one gets boils with bug bites. Mosquito bites will cause boils. She just That toxin just doesn't do well. For some of you, it could be bees or it could be mosquitoes. For some of you, to be honest, you can get boils because of certain kinds of plants, certain foods that you eat. I mean, it really is, in essence, your autoimmune system reacting. Most of the time, it's your autoimmune system reacting to something that says, whatever it is, it needs to get out because it really doesn't belong here. And unfortunately, it surfaces on your flesh. Now, who was God taking down with this one? Well, let me show you. Let me introduce you to a couple characters. Here's one of them, and that a cute little lion of a gal there. Um, Here's our first one, by the way, and her name is Sechmet. Sechmet was the one that was worshipped. She was, listen to this, a lioness goddess who was known as the goddess of war. A warrior that was known for being completely out of, troll, out of control. As a result of that, by the way, they considered that she had the right to issue epidemic and repeal them. And so they always kind of, when they looked at anything that appeared to be an epidemic, they turned to Sekhmet. But now listen, that originally the concept was, and this might sound interesting to you, that she, when she first sort of made her way onto things, she kind of made her way onto things in quite a very big show of it. And the way she did it was through a flood, a worldwide flood, for which now they said she was responsible for it. Does that sound familiar to any of you? Have you read Genesis? Well, anyways, um, you know, there's always someone that's going to try to take that credit for it. And she got the credit for it in Egypt. Now, as a result of that, at the beginning of the year, interesting, about the same period of time, maybe even exactly the same period of time, we're not sure according to our text. It's the same time that Moses is approaching them. These people go and they deal with the one thing she's known for because a goddess of war should have a weapon. And what's her weapon? Wine. That's her weapon. And as a result of that, people get hammered. Yeah, that's a great excuse, isn't it? And you'll face it. The next day you wake up, you'll feel like she'd been dancing on your head. So the people they do is they just consume mass quantities of wine till they are completely inebriated and basically pass out naked as as, as an attitude to try to keep this going. You can go to the next one of her to keep her uh, sort of placated. Now, you may not be able to see this well, but this is an emblem of her. And there's another individual. And boy, he's really kind of dark here. And if you can see this thing right here, that's a chalice. And he is offering that chalice to her with the idea of him getting drunk in her name. So there is this particular gal. And the idea of it is, is that he would, God would be taking down, of course, this goddess segment. But there's one even more clear to this as we see this approach. And go ahead to the next one. And that is Inhotep. Now, Inhotep, by the way, or Imhotep, it all depends on what part of Egypt you're from is a real fascinating character because this guy actually literally existed. That's the difference between this guy and a lot of the others. I mean, it's sort of like some of those other people. It's like Batman or Spider-Man. You know, you kind of really don't. I mean, if a guy is in that suit somewhere out there, you pretty much guess he's delusional or he's looking for money. Right? Let's be honest. It isn't. Or you're walking down, you know, the South Bank where all those guys are there anyways. Right? But in all honesty, I mean, if you're really going to be honest, there's no real. I mean, I hope I don't. There's no real Batman. Are you aware of that? No, nor, I better be careful what I say beyond that. But anyways, 
But Inhotep, on the other hand, by the way, in 3150 BC was a, was a person and he was brilliant. He was an artist. He was a philosopher. He was an architect, by the way. And he was a scientist. And he was the chief counselor to the king of Egypt at the time. His name, by the way, is Zotzer. Now, he was also the founder of a school of architecture. And as a result of that, was the person that architected, if I could say architected, can you use that as a verb? Well, here we go. Um, he architected the first large building project in all of Egypt, which, by the way, for what it's worth, is the step pyramids of Saqqara. And so he was kind of known for that. Well, now, as a result of that, the guy being so brilliant that from that point on, there was sort of a cult of personality that followed him even after he died, and they canonized him and actually declared him a god. So by this particular period of time, he was worshipped as a god, but he was just a human being. But he was a smart human being, and there's something in that. He actually wrote a book. Because he was a scientist, he actually was big on medicine. Strangely enough, one of the things that he actually sought to speak a cure of was that of boils. Here's the most ironic thing. According to Imhotep, do you know what he actually said was the cure for boils? Ashes. I find that interesting. That if you were to have boils, the way to treat them is to cover them in warm ash. Now, I think there's something to that in the sense of that ash is basically carbon and carbon's quite hungry. And so you can kind of put it on and such to suck things out of you. As a matter of fact, sort of like charcoal. A, a little word of advice, by the way, if you go to a third world country and you're going to have to eat food that you really don't know where it comes from, and, and, and maybe you're the kind that has a weak stomach anyways, or maybe you're just afraid because you're going to come to the international Thanksgiving. Um, anyways... <laughs> Um, charcoal tablets, you can get them at just about any health food store. They are the deal. Because if you think you're going to be getting something stomach-borne, you put them in there and it just sucks up all... Now, you won't get any nutrients, so don't live on them because you'll get, you know, you'll die of malnourishment. But they're really good to suck up things. I can tell you, I think I've lived through an awful lot of things because I've been in places where everyone else is like, this doesn't look or smell good. And I'm like, let's eat it. A couple of charcoal tablets and everyone else is like wishing death upon themselves and I'm playing basketball, you know. And so all of that to say, and here's the point, is that it's a charcoal. It's, and the charcoal is just a carbon-based thing and it eats up a lot of that stuff. And so in Hoptep, what he said is, is if you take this warm sort of warm ash and rub it on your skin, it starts to suck up the toxins. So it was actually was sort of brilliant. Now, now, don't miss this on this, because both of them had their own cults, for what it's worth. The, the cult of Sunu, by the way, was the cult for the other one, uh, for Sakhmet. But, but in regards to him, the cult of Enhotep. And the people here, by the way, what they worshipped was, and don't miss this, they, what they worshipped was knowledge. And I find this interesting, because now, according to our text, as we take a look at it, Moses is going to stand against the magicians that are on hire, who, by the way, are in essence priests of Inhotep. Your magicians were your doctors. You were in, they were your in-house doctors. And they were supposed to be, in essence, don't miss this, the most educated of all of Egypt. Now, please understand, Egypt was known and will be known all the way through beyond into the second century AD as the hub of all intellect. Did you know that? More than Greece, more than Rome. As a matter of fact, the one place that was known for it more than anywhere other place in the world was the place of Alexandria, Egypt. 400 years before the birth of Jesus, the man who was in charge of the area at that time after Alexander the Great had passed away and left it to his generals. Now he had actually commanded them, the man in charge of that area had commanded that every book that was ever written was to be translated into Greek and put into the library there in Alexandria. So you can imagine how like, sort of smart that would be. Now, we can be thankful for that because as a result of that, there were 70 or so, it's arguable, 70 or so religious leaders, Hebrew speakers that were Hebrew scholars who were then required to or hired to translate the Old Testament as we know it. And that's where we get the book, the Septuagint, if you're familiar. Septuagint, by the way, means 70, the 70. And so with that in mind, all of the reason I say that is, is that Egypt was sort of always known as the place where the smart people were from. Now maybe here it's like, I'm from Oxford. Oh, you can't be stupid if you're from Oxford. That kind of thing. And that's kind of the idea. It sort of has that reputation. And all of a sudden, this whole thing starts to hit the fan on me. Because I realize what God is going after. Now, let me say something. And, and I will probably be very offensive today, but I challenge you again, don't just believe me. Take it to the scriptures and decide for yourself. God has given you a brilliant mind and he wants you to use it. You are not to get a lobotomy because you've become a Christian. 
God does not want you trying to prove how much smarter you are than everyone else in the world because of your Christianity. The tools that God has ordained to change the world are simple tools for good reason. Because if they're simple tools, simple people could get saved too. And simple people could use them. The problem often within our Christian experience is that we tend to think that what God needs to make profound difference are profound people. And as a result of that, we look for somebody who's eloquent, who's socially gifted, or maybe just Mr. Smarty Pants. But in the end of it all, what you find then is that the majority of the people who call themselves Christians assume themselves disqualified from world-changing ministry because it, they just aren't smart enough, they're not gifted enough, they're not equipped enough. Am I speaking truth here? And I can see it on your faces. The gospel, according to the scripture, is the power of salvation to any who would believe. And nothing is more world-changing and nothing is more offensive. The Holy Spirit, according to John 14, is the one who convicts. You don't, and by the way, the same word that's used for convince. It's not my job to convince you. It's the Holy Spirit's job. Isn't that great? He who plants and waters, according to 1 Corinthians, you know what the people of God says he chose? The weak, the dumb, or unwise. You can use whatever term you want. The despised, the base. You know what the base is? That's something at the bottom. The bottom dwellers. And the are nots. What's an are not? <laughs> you ever had anyone look at you and say, I see no potential in you? Congratulations, you qualify. The more you think you're ill-equipped, the more you qualify for God's ministry. Because God loves getting the credit for what God does. Now, in Chicago, you don't have to be from there, but a basketball jersey with the number 23, does that mean anything to any of you? No. Some because you, now, what does it mean? It means Michael Jordan. See, that word. Yeah, thank you, my dear. And there's the same within every sport. There's a number associated with an individual that is so good that when he retires, they retire the number. Now, there's nothing specifically gifted about the jersey. It isn't like you look at the jersey and go, look at this threading. This is why he did that. He jumped higher because this threading must be clearly a half ounce lighter, 16 grams lighter than every other jersey. He, that's why they called him Air Jordan was because of the jersey. Look at this sweat. This way, no, you know, look at this striping, this piping. Look at the way they made the letters. He could look at it, it's red. That would inspire his adrenaline. And, and no, it's like, oh, come on, it's a jersey. But people are paying over $100,000 for a jersey. Of course, they also still bid five grand for Moses. For Moses. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know that guy's selling you something. For um, Elvis's underwear, by the way. And so that just tells you, see, that's equally as weird as far as I'm concerned. You might as well want Moses's. Now, here's the point, and going back to, to Jordan for a second. And the same, by the way, with Pele, if those of you are familiar with Pele, who mastered the bicycle kick. Because in it, it wasn't that the jersey was beautiful or amazing, it was the person who wore it that made it special. Does that make sense? Here's the problem. I think sometimes we think of ourselves more as the athlete. And so here we are kind of considering it, and we're like, God, I'm really not good enough. Why would you ever use me? I don't even know how I made the team. God's like, thanks for the charity case. We're going to lose because I'm on it. And God's like, look, can I just make it clear? You're the jersey. I'm the athlete, God's speaking. And all of a sudden, everything changes. When I realize who it is that's going to put me on, the undefeated, undisputed heavyweight champion of the universe... And he wants to put me on? No, exactly. What part of that is mine? Let me tell you what part is mine. If you're going to go out and play a sport for a second, think about what clothes you are not going to wear. You're not going to wear clothes, by the way, that are going to be constricting, that are going to argue with your movements. Right? Could you imagine if the clothes we wore when we wanted to play a sport were like us as we're a jersey for the Lord? It's like you go to take a step and your shoe goes, ah, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm not really sure we should step here because I'm unfamiliar with this ground. And you know, you'd, you'd be looking like psycho, right? Because you'd be like, oh, and your jeans are going, no, 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 no. We're walking too fast. This is too fast for me. This is too fast. Change is happening too much, right? And the shirt's going, I don't know. We will start working up a sweat. I'm going to get dirty. Now think about that for a second. 
And somewhere down the line, in the morning, the Lord's opening up his closet. Might I say it's the prayer closet? And he opens up the prayer closet and he wants to see who's in there. And what happens when you're praying? You know what you're doing? You're putting yourself in the prayer closet. And the Lord's just kind of looking. He's going, now, what should I wear today? And some of us are like, don't pick me. Don't pick. I'm just here in the closet. I'm just here to look good in the closet with other clothes. This is, I'm like, we're like the, the wardrobe monks, you know? <laughs> we just want to sit in the dark and sit here and just hope we don't get eaten by moths, right? And then there's a few of us that are a little bit more like hyper that are like, pick me, pick me, pick me, you know, do something cool today. And God goes, I want to go someplace different today. And some of us are like, pick Cam now, pick as long as it's something I'm used to, I'm good with it. And God's like, no, 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 no. I want to do something awesome today. And we go, oh, okay, okay. And, and in that, the reason is, is because God really is just, now God doesn't have to do that. He could have done it all on his own. But even like with Moses, he still loves to give someone the joy of being a part of it. There's something about that. And as you know, if you're a parent, it's like that is not because you get less a mess and more help. It's because the mess gets bigger and it gets harder. But you can sit back later on and go, remember when we... And you have this intimate memory that's uniquely yours. And God wants to have that with you. It's like, remember when you prayed that, that I'd save your mom? And then I put you on. And you fought me. You fought me. I was, I was going there and you're like, no, no. Could you imagine you're walking out the door and the sleeves of your shirt just grab a hold of the door and you're like, no, no, no. You just would look so weird. You'd freak out people in Camden with that kind of attitude. And the Lord is desirous today, beloved. The Lord is desirous to put you on. But here's the problem. Is that we can fight the Lord in all of this because somehow we forget now, if the athlete knows what he's doing, that's good. Because if the athlete knows what he's doing, you don't have to worry anymore about what part's yours. Your part is to go with him. It's to move with him when he moves. It's to cling to him when you need to cling to him. But the moment you want to fight him, you know, it's like the good news is God doesn't get tired, but you sure are. You're going to rip and you're going to tear and then you're going to be all disfigured and you're like, that God, he's so mean because I'm disfigured. And God's like, yeah, uh-huh, it's all my fault. Now listen, all education isn't good education. Just because a person is educated does not mean that God applauds it. Now understand what I mean by that. Back in Chico, where I was before the Central Coast, another place we visited, Hundreds of miles away. Not, I'm not bitter. It was a quite a long drive. The newspaper that was there actually gave you the recipe for how to make meth. Methamphetamine. No, the, 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 and their excuse was, well, we didn't give the proportions. Oh, I'm sure no one's going to experiment until they find the recipe by killing everyone. It's like, well, we're just here to educate people. And I'm like, not every education is good. There are those who are highly educated in how to get into a room and shoot everybody before they get out. There is an entire group that exists in northern Nigeria educating young men for that purpose. Not all education is good. As a matter of fact, what God says is that what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Luke chapter 16, verse 15. Things that people worship here on earth make God want to puke. That's what an abomination is. Something that is so awful, it makes you want to puke. Now all of a sudden I get this idea and I start looking at this and I realize, well, wait a minute. Go ahead and go to the next Inhotep picture, by the way. There he is, by the way, writing out his laws, his medicine laws, which, by the way, the people are going to follow, including the one we're dealing with here. Now, I find it interesting what God has to do here to deal with this guy. Now, look at. Well, let me, let me say it this way. I'm starting up my computer as I get home from this trip to California. 
And any of you get this? Your startup disk is almost full. I don't even know what that means, right? There's a disk that starts up, and apparently it's full or almost full, right? And so I look and I realize it's full of nonsense. It's full of things like applications that my children have downloaded so they can do like pretty princess party download things or whatever, right? Whatever. You know, movies that kind of make them happy or whatever, that kind of thing that I would rather get a lobotomy than watch. But anyways, but um, not all of them. Just anything that involves teens. But anyways, um, I realize that there's only a certain amount of space that my laptop has in memory. And I have the responsibility to choose what I want to fill that memory with. I could fill it with things that in essence are temporarily pleasing for the moment. You could watch the movie, everything's good. They fill up a lot of space. But ultimately what happens is then when you have something important to do, there's no space left. Unfortunately, we all have a limited amount of RAM in our heads and a limited amount of storage as a whole. Now, wouldn't it be nice if we were infinite so we could actually store all that cesspool of trivial knowledge that we have amassed? I mean, that was a time when I could quote every lyric for, from bands that today I wouldn't want to know any lyric from. But I knew them all. Songs and all. Solos and all. Because that was where I lived at the moment. There was stuff that made its way in. Are you with me on this? Interesting, I talked to, when I taught secondary school for five, six years, there were guys who could not memorize a single verse. They're like, I guarantee you, there's not a verse in Scripture that I could memorize. I said, could you say Jesus wept? They said, Jesus wept. I said, you memorized the Scripture. How's that? All right, anyways. Um, so, you know. And they're like, but these guys knew every word to the movie Dumb and Dumber. Do you remember that movie way back when? They could quote. And I'm like, that tells me that you know, that, that, that you know how to memorize things. And there was a part of me that was tempted to remove the soundtrack and just replace scripture. But then I thought it would be almost blasphemous. Like, it's like, you know, for God so left the world. And, you know, <laughs> and he gave us the only begotten son. You know, just because if nothing else, it'd be like, I think I memorized it, man. I just watched these two, you know. And I realized that would really be blasphemous in the end of it all. At least irreverent, to say the least. Every one of us has a limited amount of space. And here's the interesting thing. According to what a boil is, poison has made its way in and it surfaces on your flesh. And can I say that's exactly the same thing that happens with our knowledge if we're not careful. According to the book of Galatians chapter 5, and don't just believe me, search it on your own, it tells us that the works of the flesh are evident. And then he lists a whole bunch of them. It's in the plurality, by the way, the works of the flesh. And then he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is. And then you love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. By the way, all singular. That's one, the fruit. And I think it's interesting because what God had said right before that, he set it up with this. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever you sow, you're going to reap. Whatever you're going to plant, you're going to bear forth fruit. You can't plant a peach pit and expect to get an apple tree from it. God knows better, and you should too. And he goes, if you sow to the flesh, you're going to reap to the flesh destruction. You're going to sow to the Spirit, on the other hand. You're going to reap that everlasting life. That's the tree that these things bear forth from it. And interesting, because the idea is, well, how do I sow to the flesh? Well, one of the ways is really what I put in here. And I'm back at the field of Inhotep. Because interesting, because when I actually put the wrong thing in here, it surfaces in a very ugly way through my flesh. Interesting, because the very thing that was supposed to produce healing is the same thing that now hurts me, according to this text. And what's the difference? Look at my text again, your text as well. It's not unique to me. Exodus 9.8, listen to this again. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take for yourselves handfuls of ash. Interesting, by the way, do you know ash has only been used once in Scripture up to this point? And it was where Abraham, speaking to God, actually, by the way, in a haggle session with God over how many people before God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah, he says to God, but I'm but ashes and dust. He says, that's what I'm made of. I'm a carbon-based life form is what he actually says to God. Interesting. From a furnace. And by the way, there was only one of the times so far that a furnace has been mentioned. And by the way, that is when God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. Which, by the way, I don't know if you know this, was considered the intellectual hub of the valley. Now, listen. 
No, I'm not saying smart people are evil. I'm saying all people are evil. Smart people are just smart and evil, that's all. (laughs) Strong people are strong and evil. Social people are social and evil. But in the end of it all, we need a Savior. It's so simple and insults the brilliant. It's so tender. It, It challenges the strong. And it's so humble and insults and offends the proud. But it is universal saving. And God loves you so much. He made it simple for a reason. So the issue will not be you understanding it, but you acting on it. Ashes from the furnace. Moses scattered it, but notice where he scatters it. According to our text, in verse 8, and then as well in verse 10, where does Moses scatter the ash? Toward heaven. To the world, it is a symbol of healing. It is the promise of health. Ash, of all things. I can take that and we're going to rub it on your flesh. Everything's going to look good. But you throw it up to heaven and it looks very different from there. As does just about everything. And again, what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination to God. And God takes a look and He says, you know what? We need to go after this. And you know what? Today, more than ever, we need to go after this. And let me tell you why. Because the church has been invaded in the last 10 years over the area of let's be brilliant first. And it makes me sick to my stomach. And so what happens is, is if we really want to see people brought into the fold of Jesus, you know what we do? We have to get a pipe-smoking, Shakespearean-acting guy with 16 letters before his name and 18 letters after, and we go, we'll hire this guy instead of actually raising up people from among the fellowship to do what God really wants, is just to reach human beings by human beings when God puts them on his jerseys. But you know, every debate I've ever watched, I've never seen a single person get saved at them. Now, maybe you did and I'm wrong, but I'll tell you this. They look like sporting events to me. You got a smart guy on one side and a smart guy on the other. And the end of it all, did our team win or not? But the world isn't busy looking to see who the best arguer is. The world's looking for someone to love them. And that's what we're supposed to be doing. And the crazy thing is, you don't have to argue to love someone. What you have to do is something harder, and that is to put yourself on the cross where you belong and let God do the work. Hang yourself up for His His work, for His accomplishment, not for your own. And you know what, beloved? Please hear me. Jesus never said the world will know that you are mine by our ability to out-argue everyone else. He didn't say you'll be known by your guns, by your puns, He said, you'll be known by your love. Listen, listen, listen for one another. According to Scripture, the way that the world will see that we're actually His disciples is not even how we love them. Did you know that? That's how we love each other. Let me tell you why. This is not that this is the only reason, but at least it's one that makes sense to me. My daughters will never see what love is by the way I treat them. Because they can't objectively observe it. They experience it, but they can't observe it. They will define my view of love by the way I treat their mother, because that they can watch. Does that make sense? And the world will not know how you love them by the way you treat them, though we should treat them very, very kind. They will observe it objectively by the way we treat each other. And I wonder what the world would see if they came in here and observed us. I can, I can tell you this. I couldn't wait to get back here because of the love I watch you guys experience with each other. It's not like, she's cute, give me a hug. That's not the kind of love we're talking about. (laughs) Real love is simple selflessness. You first. And that kind of love, by the way, is rare. As a matter of fact, it's almost extinct. Interesting, because God says he puts two things in contrast. You know what it means to put things in contrast? That means they're in essence opposite of each other. So one helps define the other. Will you tell me what the other is? Here's the second part. But love edifies. What's the first part? Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Knowledge makes you a blowfish. 
Now, do you want that? So we could be so full of knowledge. What we are is a bunch of Christian blowfish. Who wants to walk through an, uh, who wants to swim in the aquarium full of a bunch of inflated blowfish? You know what those things are? They're like all, they're like basically the cactus of the sea world. And I think, no, that's not really good. Listen to these verses and I'll throw a few out and we'll get to our text in the end of it. I'll unwrap this up. Well, it isn't that God wants you to know nothing. Second Peter 3.18 says, But grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be both glory now and forever. Amen. What does God want us to know? Jesus. First and foremost. What's amazing is we can know everything else and not know Jesus. Isn't that a bit, isn't that a bit strange as Christians? Colossians 2.3, we read, In Christ is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge? All. And by the way, for those of you who are Greek scholars, you're probably aware, all means all. Did you get that? All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, that doesn't mean God doesn't want you to be a carpenter or an architect or a mechanical engineer or whatever. The world needs those people that are gifted, but first and foremost, know Jesus. A scientist that knows Jesus. A mechanic that knows Jesus. A school teacher. They, they still can have those, right? School teachers that know Jesus. This is how Paul would say it in Philippians 3.8. I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus. The excellence of of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. Yes, I count them all rubbish. And the word in the Greek, one of my favorite Greek words, skubla, for rubbish. Skubla, like Scooby-Doo. And they'll put a whole new meaning because skubla means poop. That's what it means. So Scooby-Doo, now you remember. Scooby-Doo, do. Skubla. Paul says, I look at all, and understand, Paul was a valedictorian. Brilliant. The guy was a PhD in a lot of things that later on he looks at and he goes, you know what that PhD is for? Poo. That's what it is. Poo, that is worthless. I look at it and I think, I could take that with me. I could shape it up into something pretty. Do you like it? It's my new vase, my new vase. You like it? And you're like, it's still poo. Where you're like, yeah, but it's, it's nice poo. It's nice. I mean, as poo goes, this is nice. And you're like, it, it's still poo. Right? You're aware of that, right? Oh, well, you know, but look at I shaped that. I made it nice and flat, and I carved onto there. I'm the most awesome guy in the world. It's my poo. Like, yeah, it's my, and you're like, it's poo. And you're like, no, that's the way Paul looks. Paul looks at it and he goes, it's poo. And if you're going to talk to Paul, imagine what it would be like. We bring all of these guys before the man who seems to be one of the most profound and prolific world changers of all of history for Jesus Christ. And you want to bring him into the situation and say, what do you think? I wonder how many times he's like, I think most of what he's going to do is like, poo, 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 Nice program. Poo. It's like, because where's the Jesus in it? He's like, but that guy's really smart. He's like, yeah, there's a lot of people that were smart. Hitler was smart. The devil's smart. An idiot at the same time, but he's smart. But what good is it if that's where it goes? And again, I'm not telling you be dumb. What I'm telling you is God gave you that mind so you could know him. And listen, Jesus is infinite. So don't tell me that you got to the end of him. If you did, you got the wrong guy. I mean, God gave you a brilliant mind because there's no end to him. I know what's great is, I mean, I've been serving the Lord for over 20 years and, and been a Christian even more. And I look at that and I think, man, I just can't find an end to this guy for good reason. Man, I just, it's like being in the garden and I'm like, God, I can't seem to find an end of it. And God says, well, you won't find one. You just keep looking though. And he's like, look at, it's all poo. If it doesn't bring me to Jesus. And if I look, and it's like, could you imagine And if you sit in a class and they're like, look, at first of all, if you believe in Jesus, you're way too stupid to take my class. And my first thought is, chiching, poo. That's the first place it goes. And I think, wow, what am I going to learn in here? And God says, listen, I want you to know me. Let not the rich or the strong or the mighty or the wise glory in those things. This is Jeremiah. The mighty in his strength, the wisdom, the wise in his wisdom. 
But let him who glories, glory in this, that he understands and he knows me. That should jazz your groovy. That's what God is saying. Because you know what's amazing? We could be Christians our whole lives, so to speak, and never really know him because we're still making him up as we go along because we won't actually read the book he gave us to learn him. And then we'll say something like, I just wish I could read his mind. And I'm like, you can read his mind. He put it in a book right here. You want to read it? Where do you want to start? You know what? The more I read this beautiful book, the more confident I am. I know who this guy is. He's awesome. I could not have invented someone this amazing. Last couple things, and I want to bring this around. Because you can see why we have to go plague by plague. Because this is soul-searching for every one of us. Are you still trying to prove to people how smart you are? Hey, I had that time. I had a time several years ago where our church was all about, our fellowship back in the States, was all about really being very academic. And you know what we did? We raised up a bunch of obnoxious arguers. Oh, and they, were, they won every argument, but they never won a soul in the process. And they ran around like they were the new spiritual posse. You know? It was like, you know, and they're like, come on now, you want, to go on, you want, to go. You want some of this? My scriptures on my bandolero, right? <laughs> hey, that's hey, Mister Bad Doctrine, Amen. First John, first second Peter, ha ha ha! And the guy's like quivering like that, like you had enough, and they're like, yeah, 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 don't talk to me anymore, don't talk to me anymore. Yeah, <laughs> don't mess with me. I'm a man of God. And you can see Jesus going, did I ever do that? You know, one day they're going to stand before the Lord with their guns still smoking, and Jesus is going to go, hey, 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 sheriff. Hey, 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 Marshall, did I ever do that? They argued with him. You know what Jesus said? He goes, let me just give you a verse to ponder. I desire mercy. Listen, I, I, God speaking, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Go learn what that means. What I really want is mercy. What I really want is mercy. What I really want is mercy. And what God didn't say is what I really want is you to start a website to tell why everybody else but you is of the devil. (laughs) That's not discerning. I want you. And I want to love you. I want to invest in you. And the body does need an autoimmune system. But when an autoimmune system is overactive, it destroys the body. You're aware of that, right? Interesting, this issue of a furnace, by the way. I find this interesting. Did you think the Egyptians cremated their people? What do you think? I mean, we're aware of the fact that those that were very wealthy kind of got the whole like cake batter and whole bit, right? And they baked for six days and then they got the mummy treatment. What about the rest of them? Go ahead and flip a couple of these. Let's take a look at these. You might find this interesting. They did. That was quick. Um, Let's go to that one first. It's interesting. They did cremate, but they only cremated certain people. They cremated those that they considered damned. So there were furnaces for specific people that cremated, but the only people that the Egyptians cremated were people. By the way, they thought that Ra and Osiris were both cremated was the idea, which is interesting because they're gods. How do you burn a god? Anyways, but um, go ahead and look at the next one. By the way, there's a couple of these I just kind of looked at. This is kind of interesting because if you kind of get the idea, by the way, that's that lion-headed gal. Remember her? That little cutie, the one that was sort of the goddess of war. And look what she's doing. She's sort of spitting fire upon them. She's a real sweetheart. That's definitely, if if you, by the way, are in uh, eHarmony and you see her profile, don't, don't take it. Okay, the other one, next one, a little word of advice from your pastor. They hung them upside down to do that, by the way. Um, interesting. So um, they don't look real happy. They all kind of look like they're in a conveyor belt. But and you get the idea here. And then I think there's one more of those that you see as well. I mean, not only did they burn the people, but they burned their shadows. I'm not really sure how that worked. And their souls um, as well as their bodies. So 
But um, that's kind of the, and then again, the whole idea of that was is that that's what they saw. And it's interesting because that concept of hell that we know it as, the scripture makes clear, was something that the Lord had even showed to the to the Egyptians as well. There was a place where the worm doesn't die and the fire is never quenched. Romans, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 9, verses 42, 44, 46. And, and he makes really clear. And you could say, well, why would a loving God make a place so horrible? And my answer is, well, why would an intelligent human being of any sort choose it? And you can say, God made it awful to make your choice easy. If all good things dwell in God and all he wants, and the one thing that's most important to God is your relationship with him, why would he make any other place where he's not going to be living good? And you say, well, that sounds so unloving. The, a lo- the most loving part about it is that God gave you a choice at all. A place where he's like, look it, I love you. You can have me. And you're like, no, I want to go somewhere else. Give me someplace nice. And if not, that's not loving. That sounds like the most bizarre spoiled child I ever heard. I have a right. Let me just say, you and I have a right to go to hell. God gave you that right. But he also, by his infinite love, sent Jesus to die on the cross so you didn't have to pay the penalty of all your wrongdoing so that you could accept the gift of Jesus and be reconciled to him so you could be with him forever. That's your choice to make. So the Lord's like, look, you want to go to hell over my dead body. And when you step over, I'll rise just to keep it from making, you know. I mean, he's like, but he won't stop you. He'll deter you. He'll drive you crazy on your way there. But he can't stop you. Well, he can, but he won't because he's a gentleman. And he's not going to force you into heaven, and nor will I. But the good news is he wants you there. And I've given God no reason to want me. God doesn't love me because I'm so darn lovable. Surprise, right? God loves me because he's love. And the good news is because I can't earn it, I can't lose it either. And the same with you. So listen, friends. As we go to prayer, so is what happens. They take the ash from a furnace. The furnaces, by the way, I think about what it would be like for them. They knew furnaces is the place that separated fine metals. Furnace was also the place that baked bricks. That would be very important for these guys, wouldn't it? We already know that that's what they did. And the furnace was the place where they cremated the damned. Now, I don't know which ashes they grabbed. But Moses grabs some without warning, shows up. And by this point, if I were Pharaoh, seeing Moses would already ruin my day before he did whatever he did. (laughs) You know, you could just know that when he shows up, it's not going to be like, "Mm, this is going to be a good day. (laughs) You're like, oh, no. And it was started out so well. I went to the Nile and he wasn't there. This is a good day. (laughs) Sitting on a stone. And imagine this is what he does. He walks in with a handful of ashes, as does his brother. And I mean, how far? But you, like, you know, you get that third grade uh-oh feeling. Uh-oh. And he goes. And you, and you go, that was weird. That was really, ow. That was, oh, come on. The flash. And then he looks over. Pharaoh looks over. Look at our text. Verse 11. And the magicians could not stand before Moses. They were. So I think it gets even cooler because of the boils. Because they were on the magicians and all the Egyptians. So now what happens is just, let's put that in it. Pharaoh is sitting there with all of his magicians by him. It's the crew. And just Moses kind of walks up. (laughs) Because God had already told him what would happen. And all of a sudden, Pharaoh looks over. And by the way, you cannot be, you can be, be aware of this. As a king, who will you not have in your company? Sick people. You don't put sick people in your company. Could you imagine? Imagine having that power. You're on the underground. And there's always one guy. Right? <laughs> right? He's on yours too, right? He's on your trains too. 
You know, I've learned though, that's the only guy that's guaranteed a seat. Even a pregnant woman doesn't get a seat half the time. The guy comes walking in. Everyone flees. He's like, all right. Mm, nice. Someone wants to sit next to him. Puts his bag right there. Imagine having the power as a king to go, you're out. And anyone he's infected. He's, you know. Kings don't have those kind of guys around them. So he looks over, and there are those guys that are supposed to have the power like in Chotep, and you can go ahead and close that up if you want, Lord. You have the power like in Chotep to, to, to heal all of that stuff. The acts that's supposed to, and it's like, well, wait a minute, what do I do when that's what you're supposed to heal me? It's just made me sick. Because the knowledge, by the way, isn't it interesting? Do you realize that that was the thing that even got to Eve? Do you remember that? She saw that the tree was beautiful and good for food, which, by the way, those same two things were there before that and desirable to make one wise. That was the thing that changed. And you know what the flesh is? Let me say it clearly. What the flesh nature is in the simplest sense is me first. That's all the flesh nature is. And knowledge is an easy way to go. I'm smart. Me first. You know what? The, the more I know about Jesus, I don't know a lot about Jesus and think, I know a lot about Jesus. And because of that, I realize I'm a miserable sinner that deserves hell, but God's love is infinite. Me first. That doesn't work. The more I know about him, the more I fall in love with him. So what happens? Pharaoh looks and goes, you guys are losers. Get out. And they're done. We're done with that. And Pharaoh's stuck with his own boils. But he's still not going to let him go yet because God's got other gods to take down. And that's what we'll get next week. Three, the sixth down, Four to go. As we go to prayer, beloved, let me ask you. I'm not telling you learning is bad. Learning is great. What is it that you want to learn the most? Is in the end of it all, the Lord wants you to know Him. And there is no wisdom or counsel or knowledge against the Lord. Not in His sight. As we go to prayer, please know this, Christians, God wants to, you to know Him and make Him known. It's that simple. And He will do the work. He's just looking for a jersey to put on to change the world. And for that, I say, pick me. If you've not accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, you're not sure, there's a choice that needs to be made to accept His gift. But today you could say yes and be transformed. And He'll make you brand new. And though we are all but dust and ashes, it's He who breathes life into us anyways. And He makes us new creations. And that's His gift. If you're willing to say yes. That's a simple thing. Say yes to His love. He'll do the rest. Will you pray with me please? God, thank you so much for the sweet gift of this time. Thank you, Lord, for the honor of being able to turn to you. Thank you that, Lord, you weren't too cool to be approached. That you didn't present yourself as too smart to be approached. But you made yourself humble, taking on the form of a servant. So that nobody, even your enemies, didn't have a problem approaching you. And so, God, I just pray today, right now, for every believer in this room, God, that first and foremost, of all the things we want to learn, of all the things we want to know, that you would give us the heart like Paul to say, Lord, that in the light of the excellence of the knowledge of you, Jesus, everything else is but rubbish. May that be our foremost focus and aim. And God, I just pray for my dear and precious brothers and sisters today. God, please set us on fire for you to serve you and love you the way you intend. So have your way, God, I pray. And Lord, in that, I pray that right now you would minister to the believers in this room. God, that you would clean up our ram space, God. That you would empty out our memories, Lord, where our startup disks are almost full of nonsense. 
Lord, that really in the end of it all, that the, those things, Lord, that, that allow us to hold grudges on each other, those things that would keep us in unforgiveness, clearly, Lord, those need to be removed. Lord, those things that puff us up so we think that we're better than others, certainly the attitude, if not the knowledge, needs to be removed. And Lord, in that, replace it right now with the knowledge of You. Clean up this space, Lord, so that we would properly put in here those things that You built our brains for. And Lord, for those that You've gifted intellectually, Lord, to be able to do things that are intellectual by nature, Lord, it isn't like that we want to walk away from being smart. But Lord, may we be smart enough to call a simple thing simple and be okay with the fact that simple things are often and most often the most profound. So Lord, for the believers in this room, Lord, cleanse us in our attitude towards knowledge that we would not become disciples of Inhotep, but rather, Lord, disciples of You, where it's demonstrated first, not by the long words we use, but first and foremost, by the love we administer. And God, with that, right now in this room, if You know any, You know, Lord, the hearts of all of us. And if there be any, Lord, right now in this room, that you know have yet to say yes to you. By the power of your Holy Spirit, show them their need right now. And in this room, if you're not sure whether you've ever said yes to the gift of Jesus, or you're sure you haven't, I'd love to pray a simple prayer and I ask you to listen. And if you agree with this prayer, I ask then right now at the end of which, I ask you to say a confident Amen. And what you're saying is, let these words be my words. Let this prayer be my prayer. So be it in my life. And here it is. God, I confess to you, I'm not perfect. You know better, and so do I. I've sinned. I've done wrong. I've thought wrong. I've intended wrong. I've felt wrong. And that puts a separation between me and you because you as a righteous judge punish all wrongdoing. But you and your infinite love for me because you created me to love me, you knew all of this would happen, and you sent your only begotten Son, the only one from your own gene pool, Jesus, the Christ, to die on the cross for my sins so that all of my guilt could be properly punished without me having to be the one that's punished upon. And so Jesus died for me so that I wouldn't have to pay that penalty. And then as He died, so did my penalty. And then He rose again and now desires to be my Lord and my Savior and my love. And I say yes. I say yes to Jesus as my ransom. Yes to Jesus as my Savior. Yes, to Jesus is my Lord. So have me now, Father. Adopt me as your own. If you are as you are an adopting God, well, adopt me now as your own child as well. As I come to you and say, I'm yours. I'm yours. Have me in Jesus' name. And if you agree, I ask you to say, Amen. Thank you. Thank you for the privilege it is to walk through the Word with you. And the honor that it is to be your pastor. I don't take that lightly. I absolutely love what I get to do with you.